But I want to begin by giving you a couple scenarios. The first one, you've finished a funeral for Aunt B. And you're sitting at the table with a bunch of the relatives and you are reminiscing about her life and you've known Aunt B for a long time and she's a woman who is an avowed agnostic. She didn't have time for religion. She didn't go to church. She was, though, very helpful. She served in the soup kitchen and all over the community. And someone at the table makes a statement that, man, it's sure good that Aunt B is in heaven. And it's going to be wonderful to see her someday. And they ask you what you thought of the funeral. And you're a little bit nervous and you tell them, well, you know what? I'm just not sure that Aunt B is in heaven. And they shoot a look back at you and they say this, what kind of a God do you have? How could a loving God send someone like Aunt B to hell? And your response would be, what? <laughs> Let me give you another scenario. You've decided to go to Cousin Arthur's funeral. It's really awkward, and you're there to support the wife and the kids because the reality is that Uncle Arthur just got out of jail for molesting a couple girls. And as the funeral comes to a painful close, you're walking out with other relatives and a comment that hell was reserved for guys like Arthur. Death was too good for him. I hope that he's punished for eternity. And you respond by saying, what? Let me put one of the theme verses on the screen for us this morning. 1 Peter 3.15 But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. If you're a guest, we've been wading through some hard questions and beliefs that people actually use to hold themselves away from Jesus and not look at Jesus of the Bible. So today is the problem of hell. How in the world could a loving God send some good people to hell unless they deserved it? Let me show you a couple quotes, a couple scriptures. Well, let me, let me back up. Let me show you some stats. I need to give you those first. This is from the Pew Research Group. It's natural for people to want things to turn out well in the end, both in life and apparently afterwards. Roughly 7 in 10, 72% of Americans say they believe in heaven, defined as a place where people have led good lives or are eternally rewarded, according to the Pew Research. But at the same time, 58% of U.S. adults also believe in hell, a place where people who have had led bad lives and die without being sorry are eternally punished. And one more, there's a group what's called the nuns out there, a group that includes atheists, agnostics, and people who say their religion is nothing in particular. Fewer than 4 in 10, 37% of nuns say they believe in heaven, while 27% believe in hell. That's the stats in terms of you see the number of people that either don't believe it or not sure about it. 
Let me show you a couple of passages, though, this morning, just to give the framework here. First, or 2 Thessalonians 1.5. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering, since indeed God consider, considers it just to repay repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might Another one, Revelations 14, 9. And another angel, a third followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will continue the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name. Those are two passages that speak to the reality of a future understanding of what hell is. Now, there are about 150 references to hell in the scriptures. Now, some of the words... I can't read all of them. That You think of some of the words that speaks to it. The word wailing, flames, a place of everlasting fire, the furnace of fire, a place of separation, eternal destruction, cast away from the presence of God, torment, everlasting punishment, the lake of fire. Those are just some of the terms in reference to this idea, the reality of a hell. But now realize something here. Of all the written texts in the New Testament... The vast majority of when it speaks about hell are talked about from, in the words of Jesus himself. Jesus talked about hell more than any other author in the New Testament. But I want to put up for you the word, the Greek word for that's most often used. It's actually pronounced chena. And this is a word that's, again, most translated in the New Testament. But it's equivalent of what's called the Valley of Hinnom. And the Valley of Hinnom is immediately southwest of Jerusalem, and it's actually visible from the Mount of Olives. But it began, this place began as a place where human sacrifices were done, made to the pagan deity of Moloch. It comes out of 2 Kings chapter 23. But when King Josiah enters in and ushers in a revival, that place was condemned. And it became the garbage dump for the city of Jerusalem. But in addition to that, that's where they brought the corpses of criminals that they didn't believe deserved even a burial. So they were dumped in that place and they were burned along with the garbage. So that's the picture of hell for Jesus that he was as he was illustrating hell to the people at the time when he was talking about it. Those are the lips from the word from the lips of Jesus. But we got to realize something that Satan has a plan against the concept of hell. He wants to trick people into believing there is a more attractive afterlife. For example, 
He uses groups like the Jehovah's Witnesses. They teach what's called annihilationism. And functionally, it's this. People who are not saved are going to be snuffed out for eternity. They will just no longer exist. But if you go to, for example, uh, religions like Buddhism or Hinduism, they teach a type of reincarnation. Reincarnation. They believe then that the souls will migrate and leave in for, or, or you know, kind of into a new form of life. And it kind of depends on the karma that you have as to where you're going to, where you're going to, what kind of an animal or whatever you're going to become. The Mormons. They believe that eventually all people will go to heaven, but it will be one of three levels. Now, there's also what I would define as liberal theology as well that's espoused even by many churches. It's the idea there that basically the vast majority of people will automatically get to heaven, except maybe for those that don't deserve it. But the the unique thing about that is they would look at this Bible and they would say, we follow it. And yet they view a type of universalism that most people are going to go to heaven no matter what. Now, here's where, as I was digging in my studying this week, I came across a number of sources that was just pointing out the myths that we believe about hell. And actually, they're propagated by the movies and the media. And I just want to run through. I, I put some in your notes there. You can follow along. But I want to give you, I just quickly give you those myths. Number one, hell is a place where they will be united with their unbelieving friends. People kind of have this idea that there's going to be plenty of beer for an endless party. And that's going to be hell. But the biblical fact is, It speaks of a place of utter isolation, loneliness, and deprivation. Myth number two, hell is a place where Satan and his demons exercise their authority to rule and reign. But the Bible, the hell, is a place where Satan and his demons will actually suffer eternal judgment as well. Satan is not the warden. You kind of see that in movies. But recognize that demons are not his guards. But it's related to number three as well. Satan and his demons torment human beings who are also there. That's just not found in the scriptures. They are also object of God's wrath and punishment. Myth number four. There are people in hell crying out for mercy who want to reconcile with God. Now, here's the turkey one. There is no scripture that points to that concept, that people are going to regret it when they get there. And in fact, most theologians believe this, is that they're still going to be eternally defiant against God, and their hatred of God is actually going to increase. Myth number five, there are people in hell who don't deserve to be there. And this is just so far from the truth because God's justice is perfect and he never commits anyone to hell who does not fully deserve it. Related to that is myth number six, that there are people in heaven or people in hell who want to go to heaven while they are still alive, but God wouldn't let them. That is so far from the truth. Blatantly, it's it's actually false. And I want to put a scripture with this one from John 6, just picking out some of the verses here. Look how it reads. 
I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Myth number seven. There are people in hell who will eventually be released and granted entrance into heaven. As much as we would like to think that, it isn't so. The Bible does not teach a temporary doctrine of hell. But it fits with the idea that everyone eventually will get saved. That's what people want to believe But if you're going to believe everybody's going to get there, there's some problems, and we will see that here this morning. So this morning, I want to cover two objections. I don't have time for more, but the two, the first one in your notes, I said it like this way. A God of love would never send anyone to hell. So here's an interesting piece here, especially our culture. Many people out there are confident in a loving God. A loving God. Where do they find that concept of a loving God? Do they find it in Buddha or Hindu or the Quran, Quran, the Muslim faith? No, no, and no. You can't find it there. Let me give you the reminder for the notes here. The very concept of a loving God comes from this book called the Bible. But that truth leads to a simple question. Actually, you can ask people when you talk about being prepared to give a defense. You knock on their heart and say this, where did your concept of a loving God come from? They may not even know that it actually comes from the Bible. They've always heard it. They've always believed it. See, it's God's word that reveals that he is merciful, that he's compassionate, that he forgives sinners. But here's the challenge. Think about this way. You're talking to a family member at a funeral where there's some doubt about the spiritual destiny of a person. And and again, we don't know for sure, recognize that as to what, how God, what he did in their person's life. So I, I recognize that. But how about starting a conversation? Would you be willing to even consider this? To knock on their heart again with gentleness and respect. Cousin Sue, do you believe in hell? Have you asked somebody that? That's a knock on the door of their heart and their mind of going, what do they believe about eternity? And many people, by those stats, will go, no, I I don't. Then you could go to this question. Do you believe in a loving God? Do you see where it fits? You want to take them down a path. Do you know that the idea of a loving God starts in the scriptures, in the Bible that I believe in? See, many people just don't realize that. But they might even acknowledge that this is the word of God. And here's a statement that you could make at that point. You could say something like this. You know, my experience is that people treat the Bible 
like the brunch buffet over at Toivos on Sunday mornings. They pick and choose which things they want, which sound really good to them. But do you understand one thing? Jesus has a problem with that. He views this as an authoritative as the whole counsel of God. What are you doing there? What you're doing is to plant a seed within their hearts and trying to point to a reality that Jesus is the one that talks about hell, but he is the one that is the hope for eternity as well. See, we're called to plant those seeds. Now, if they don't respond at that point, if you're at a funeral, just keep eating your cake. Have a cup of coffee, okay? But the reality is God calls us to be ready to talk about these things. But let me give you a re- another reminder here that we need to state, I think even with confidence, a loving God must also be just. A loving God is a just God. And that means justice. I've been trying to challenge us to learn the spiritual skill of the art of asking questions. And here's an example you could use to even just give a scenario that could lead to a number of questions. Let me give it to you here this morning. Imagine that a man does something horrific to your child. What if a man beatily kills and rapes one of your children? And that man is caught. And he goes up in front of the judge. And they they present the crimes to the judge. And the judge looks at the man and he begins to laugh. And the judge says, no problem. You're free to go. Ask them, would that be an unloving act against the family? And I think they would say, yes. See, a loving judge condemns the lawbreaker in order to love his neighbors and that family. God, listen, God would be unloving to welcome sinners into heaven without justice if they deserve punishment. Imagine a guy like Hitler getting to the gates of heaven and God says, it doesn't matter. Come on in, Hitler, it's good to see you. Come on, don't worry about what you did. See, that would be profoundly unloving in God's eyes. Folks, his justice comes under the umbrella of his love. Justice does not contradict his love. It builds on it. See, the answer to a loving God who would never send anyone to hell is just flat out wrong. And it's actually not reasonable. If that was true, justice doesn't matter at all. At all. Now here's where I'm going to go deeper. We are created in the image of God. And there's this idea built within us is this idea of fairness. Of what's fair. Now, understand because of sin, because of our depravity, we don't apply it accurately, okay? Uh, In a parenting video, we do a parenting gathering just talking about questions. 
And I showed a video a couple weeks ago, and it was two, I think they were boys, they were about eight months old, they were sitting right next to each other, these acute twins. And one reaches over and grabs the pacifier out of the other mouth, and he sticks it in his mouth. And the other one goes, that's not fair. And he reaches over, and he grabs it back, and he puts it in his mouth. And then one more time, the other one grabs it out of his mouth, pulls it away, he's kind of, he pulls it away and sticks it in. And then that first baby began to cry. Why? Built into that little child already at eight months is there was an injustice done. That wasn't fair. That wasn't fair. See, why? Because God has put laws and understanding into the hearts of all people. Matter of fact, let me show you Romans chapter 1 and point something out here. 1 verse 20. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived by by everybody ever since the creation of the world in which things have been made so that they, who's they? Everyone is without excuse. And within that eternal power includes this idea of justice as well. See, people know and understand that unjust things happen all the time. You look at moms who's, it doesn't matter if they're a follower of Christ or not, that the baby is lost. There is an injustice that wells up within our hearts that is in us completely. And we know deep down when horrific things take place that justice must take place. But look at Romans chapter 2, how Paul builds. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, on our hearts. While their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So they are, in one sense, the reality is people are without excuse, but but this idea of fairness and justice is there. Deep down, see, people at the deepest level, they know they're guilty when they do wrong. They know that there's a right and a wrong, and that it must lead to justice. But recognize people are trapped in this word depravity. They're born with a love curved into themselves. I talked about this the first week of the series. So what do people do? Rather than looking at who they are, you know, you look in a mirror, they go, I don't like this person, so I'm just going to turn. And I'm going to hide from people. I'm going to hide my sin from people. People don't want to feel convicted. You know, I've done lots of marriage counseling over the years. And I discovered that there's a pride thing for people not wanting to come in. Why? Because somebody might point out the sin in their life and reveal something about what they're doing wrong. That's just one of the reasons. But see, we don't want to look at our unrighteousness. We try to avoid it. Even though God has put the law on our, in our hearts, we want to turn from that and go, I, don't, I want to avoid that, at least in my life. Now, will we look at somebody else's life? Absolutely. And see, it really then moves to another question, another objection. Okay, God sends some people to hell. But objection number two, God won't send good people to hell. God won't send good people. And who are they talking about at that point? 
The person here, no, they're viewing themselves that way as a good person. But here's the reminder for your notes. People claim the right to decide when and how justice is to be served. I want to decide when justice should take place. Um, See, people are okay with really bad people going to hell. You know, I don't know if you guys realize this. I've used Hitler as an example here. Most of you have heard this, is that the death toll for him was that he killed or had killed an estimated 6 million Jews. But what people don't realize about history is it also was another 5.5 million Soviet citizens from Russia. He had killed about 3 million prisoners of war. He had about 1.8 million Polish citizens who were not Jewish killed. And if you total them up, it is like taking every man, woman, and child from Minnesota, Iowa, North Dakota, South Dakota, and Wisconsin and wiping every person off the face of the earth. That was the atrocities of Hitler. Of course he deserves to go to hell. Lying? Cheating at school? Everybody does that. Nice people do those things. Why would you dare say that I deserve hell? Because of those little sins. I do far more good things than bad things. The punishment of hell doesn't fit the crime, Ken. That's not justice. Let me throw an example. Cheating at school. What should the punishment be? Any teachers here? (laughs) I don't want to admit it. My mom was an elementary teacher. I don't think she liked cheating. You know, they come at the beginning of the year, no cheating allowed, and they explain what that means. And then when they catch you, you go up to the, you're you're caught red-handed, and you go up to the teacher, oh, it doesn't matter. Just ignore it. Is that fair? See, but quickly they come back and, well, cheating itself doesn't deserve hell. Now, now here's where being prepared to give an answer. How do you go deeper with people? Because they believe that they're a good person. See, that's the tension. So here's what you could do. You could turn to, for example, to a Romans chapter 3 and you put it up on your phone and you hand it to them and you say something. Look, would you read Romans 3, 10 and 11, 12? Look how it reads. As the scriptures say, no one is righteous, not even one. No one is truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. And he asks the question, what does that mean? And they're probably going to go, I don't know. And it's this, everyone stands condemned before God. No matter how big 
or little the sin is. And because God is just, he decides what is good and what is evil and what deserves punishment. That's God's job. Every sin demands justice, not just the big ones as I define it, but also the little ones. But here's where we got to go deeper even and understand the breadth of sin itself and what the real issue is. There's a picture of of an iceberg. You want to put that up there on the screen? Here's a picture of the iceberg. Above the surface of the water, it's just cheating and white lies. But what people don't realize is the stuff that's under the surface. And we stand condemned not just for the cheating. It's in more ways, it's the stuff that's down underneath the water. And what's the stuff? It goes back to the fall of Adam and Eve where they believed the lie and they claimed that said this, I can be like God. I get the right to decide what's good and evil. I get the right to decide what justice is. I'm going to have love curved into myself. I'm going to do what I want to do and nobody's going to tell me what to do. Even the act of cheating, I have a right to cheat and it shouldn't matter, is an act of saying, I can play God. I don't know if you know, but Romans 1 says this. They, they believed the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. The lie actually goes back to Genesis chapter 1. The lie was told, you can be like God. You get to decide what is good, what is evil, what's just, unjust. See, when Adam turned away, it was more than just the surface sin was eating the fruit. The real sin was he began to, where love, his love curved into himself. And he said, I don't need you, God. I am going to become independent. And I will decide what's appropriate justice. And you understand the logical step took place. He declared independence from God. He turned his back and he walked away from God. Adam and Eve walked away relationally from God. He was a loving father, and they said, I don't care. I'm going to do what I want to do. Let me give you another reminder, though. People who don't want hell, they just love to use a scale to determine what their righteous standing before God is going to be. The scale, if I do enough good things, then I get hell, or do bad things, I get hell. Good things, of course I should go to heaven But see, it isn't about that. The scale doesn't work in the economy of God. But they keep believing. These people are doing more bad things and I'm doing good things. Why shouldn't I go to heaven? Overall, I'm a pretty good person. But here's what they don't realize. Put that picture of of that there. They don't realize the bottom things there. That's what they haven't caught. Their own love, their own self-righteousness, their independence. I don't need you, God. That's turning their back on God relationally. See, deserving is far more than just the surface actions. We, it's easy to look around and just go, Hitler, yeah, Evil. 
That's above the water what he did. But we just cheated in school. But what we don't see is what's underneath it. See, the fact is above the water, you can be a really nice person. You can, matter of fact, I, I see people who don't claim any kind of allegiance to Christ. They have better marriages than people who attend church all the time. But what's under the water is the issue. See, the scale doesn't work as a pathway to heaven. And it's because of those things it's why it doesn't work. Now, realize something. I'm not going to dig in all the questions and I don't have time or every week we'd have to be talking about hell a number of weeks. Think of some of the questions that you might want to wrestle with and actually dig online. Why would God have created us if he knew that people were going to hell? You ever thought of that one? Lots of people are asking the question. Why would God create a hell for eternity in the first place? Isn't that proof of an unloving God? See the dilemma? Always be prepared to give a defense and pointing people to the hope of Jesus. See, God really doesn't send man to hell. Sin has done it. And man sends himself by choosing to love himself and ignore God. That's the reality. See, the reality is also people in this world can understand and appreciate the love of God. They like the idea. Does it mean that they turn and give their love to him? The answer is no. They don't. They like a loving God, but love him fully? No. C.S. Lewis said this, if the doors of hell are locked, they are locked from the inside. I think he's right. See, man is consistently choosing against God. They're wrong about God. They're wrong about hell. And the unrepentant man is blind to both God and sometimes his love and even to the issue of hell. Now here's the hard part. Even studying this week, this is such a, I even sense it here today. This is a sobering topic. I wouldn't call this one of my top 10 fun topics to preach on. But what's our response when you begin to dig at this issue of the reality of hell? And I think a couple of responses are in order. First one, if you are a follower of Christ, this should move us toward a sense of sorrow and fuel our desire to share Christ with others. And there's people that was coming to my mind as I was studying this week and they don't know Jesus. They've never met him. I think it behooves us to stop and then pray for people that the Spirit would begin to work in their lives. But I think the second reality is there, is that it should lead us to profound gratitude. You know what, when, he, when you look at that Revelation 14 passage that I read earlier, do we realize in reading that, that's what we deserve? We deserve it. God would have been perfectly just and righteous if he would have relegated me to hell. To eternal torment. 
but in mercy, he opened my eyes to the love of Christ. In mercy, he poured out his wrath on Jesus on the cross and not on me. Jesus took my place. Jesus willingly embraced and endured the wrath and the judgment of all of those who turn and gaze and love the Son. See, the reality is every single one of us deserves damnation. And God really owes us nothing, nothing in that. But the fact that he has given us mercy instead of justice, that he's given us forgiveness instead of condemnation, ought to awaken us to stand in awe of his love and his compassion. It should move us to thanksgiving and it should move us to worship him and to give our lives to him fully. Here's how I want to end it. I'm just going to pause here for about 20 seconds because I sense there may be two groups of people even in this room. One sense, you have put your faith and trust in Christ. And, and I would invite you, just take a few seconds to give him thanks and give him your worship. But there might be another group of people here where, you know what, there might be some of you that's going, I'm not sure where I'm going. I'm not sure if heaven is my destiny. And my invitation for you is that you would bend your heart toward Christ, admit your independence from God, and would you give your life and turn your heart and your life over to Christ? Admit that you're a sinner and that you don't know him. You don't know the son. And as you admit that and you ask him to come into your life and change you, he will give you a new heart where eternity will not be hell. It'll be heaven. See, God loves you. From the very beginning of time, he wanted to pour out his love into this world. And he's still today wanting to reconcile people to himself. He wants people to know the love of his father. So let me just pause. And let's just ponder and give thanks and maybe do some business with God. Let me just pause.